This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. So we've been learning about the art of end time preaching, how to be competent communicators for Christ in the context of the last days. And we've been learning that preaching is the means of giving others a reason to believe so that they might be saved. It's uh, something that is very personal because God wants to communicate his heavenly message through human instruments. And uh, every single one of us, we all have a unique experience, a unique uh, uh, relationship with the Lord. And so each one of us, God wants to use to, to, to share a unique picture of who he is with the world. I want to start by reading this verse where Jesus distills for us what it means to have eternal life. Very familiar verse. Jesus said, and this is life eternal, that they might what? Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Salvation is not found in what we know, but who we know. And if we know him, we have eternal life, because in him is life. And he who has the Son has life, the Bible says. But this word know is far deeper than an intellectual understanding. In biblical terms, the word know is so deep. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. So the word know has the connotation of intimacy of oneness, of two coming together in a, in a special encounter, a personal relationship, and God wants us to know Him like that. And friends, when we know Him, then our greatest desire will be to make Him known to others. And that's the personal mission of my life, to know Him and to make Him known. But how does this happen? How do we know Him? Well, the Bible tells us in Psalms 46 verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Before Christ can be exalted, he must be known. And in order for him to be known, we have to be still. Hush. Listen. Spend time with the Lord. The exaltation of Christ is the result of knowing Christ. And it is in the womb of the mind and the heart that sermons are conceived. This conception is the result of the union of divinity and humanity coming together. As divinity comes into humanity, humanity is then implanted with the seed of truth. And after a period of incubation, that seed grows into a sermon. Then that sermon is birthed or delivered behind the pulpit so that people can see the Word being made flesh through our Word pictures and our proclamation. But before delivery, there has to be labor. Labor always comes before deliverance. So we're going to talk in this presentation the laboring process that enables the birth or the delivery of a sermon to actually happen. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we must make time to study for ourselves. Take time to gather the content. And so the question is, what are the organic materials that make up a sermon? 
What are the ingredients of the sermon meal? There are two different sources, primary sources and secondary sources. This is the content of our communication. The substance of the sermon would come from these sources. The primary sources, the Bible. Amen? Spirit of prophecy and the book of nature. Because God reveals himself through the things that he has made. Romans 1.20 tells us. So these are the primary sources. These are the building blocks of your sermon meal. But then there are secondary sources that we can draw from. And those are our own experience, of course. Providence, how God has led us in our own personal lives. Personal thought journals. Maybe God has revealed some special things, some impressions, and you write those down in personal thought journals. And then number three, of course, the product of other men's minds. Whether it be written works or even spoken works. Maybe you heard a sermon that moved your heart. Nothing wrong with taking that material that you heard in that sermon and and making it your own and, and preaching it. Nothing wrong with that. You read books, you hear things that inspire you. Those are some secondary sources that we can draw the materials and the ingredients for a sermon meal. And so remember, that's secondary sources. Primary sources, Bible, Spirit of Prophecy, and the Book of Nature. And so these are the sources. Now, how do these organic materials come together to actually create a sermon? How are sermons conceived, developed, and born? Well, that's what we're going to discuss in this presentation. How do we assemble the mass of matter? What are the steps? Well, first of all, let's understand that there are actually different kinds of sermons. There are at least three of them I want to share with you. Three types of sermons. One of them is what we call the textual sermon. The textual sermon is based upon a passage of Scripture, maybe one verse or one or two verses, just a small small passage of Scripture. And so a textual sermon would take that passage and it would extract all the meaning and all the phrases and words and sentences in that passage and everything else in the rest of the sermon would be to illustrate and support that one main passage, that one main thought. That's what you'd call a textual sermon. Then there is the topical sermon. The topical sermon is based upon a topic of Scripture in the Bible. And topical sermon would do this. It would gather all the cooperating verses from Genesis to Revelation concerning that topic, and it would compare those verses with each other to teach what the Bible, or to to demonstrate what the Bible teaches concerning that specific topic. The Sabbath is a topical, would be a, would be a sermon, uh, a Sabbath sermon would be a topical sermon because it's not found in one place in the Bible, but throughout the whole Bible. The state of the dead, sanctuary, these would be topical sermons. And then there's the expository sermon. This would be a sermon based upon an entire unit of Scripture, most of the times a story in, in the Scripture or a narrative. And uh, that narrative, you just go verse by verse and extract all the truths and all the practical applications from that story. And so it's, an, it's good to understand uh, the different kinds of sermon. They accomplish different things. And so when you're sitting down getting ready to write a sermon, you have to decide what kind of sermon is going, it's going to be. And so now let us consider 13 steps in managing the material. Assembling and organizing and structuring the mass of matter. So we're going to go through this step by step. 
This is uh, probably the most practical presentation of the six we're sharing. And so step number one, we're just going to go through it together. Number one, you got to choose the text or the theme that you want to preach on. Choose the text. Now, you may choose it or it may choose you. That's what we call inspiration. You read something and, and it moves you so much that it's, it's like it's saying to you, you got to preach on me. You got to share me with others. That's inspiration. So you may choose it, it may choose you, but most of the time, sanctified judgment is to be used to choose the text or the theme of your, of your, of your sermon. Now, where do we get this sanctified judgment from? From three main places. Number one, our connection with the Lord through personal Bible study and daily prayer. The Lord reveals to us, He impresses us upon what is the best thing to share uh, in, in, a, in a specific context. So number one, our connection with the Lord. Number two, our connection with people, spending time with others, knowing our audience, knowing the people in whom we're going to address or give a Bible study to. And as we know where they're itchy, we know where to scratch. We know that where they're aching, we know where to massage. And so that is where uh, some discernment comes in when you spend time with people. Then number three, our connection to the times. The times, keeping up with world events, seeing what's happening in the world today, the, the moods of society, what the contemporary mind is thinking about. And as we understand what's happening, God gives us discernment as to what is the best thing to share. So step number one, very simple. Choose the text or the theme, or it may choose you. <clears throat> you also want to take advantage of maybe special events that happen throughout the calendar year. Or even the church calendar. Uh, for example, on October 31st, what do you want to preach on on October 31st? Not Halloween. <laughs> the Protestant Reformation. Amen. You know, nothing wrong with preaching a sermon on, on, on the, the nativity, the, the incarnation of Christ during the Christmas season and the resurrection during that time of year. Nothing wrong with those things. And month of October, it's a good month to remember the history of our church. Maybe do a message on the investigative judgment or the history of how God rose up this special movement. And so, step number one, very simple, choose the text. Then number two, observe the text. Observe the text. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Read the text several times in several different versions of the Bible. And as you read that verse several times in several different versions, take note of the following. The sentence structure of the text. Unusual words or phrases in the text. Is there any repetition? Maybe an emphasis. Like, for example, in our last presentation, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and we saw that there was a repetition where Jesus said, You have heard what I say to you. You have heard what I say to you. So as you're reading it, take note of those things that sometimes it's easy for us to pass over. Unusual words or phrases, repetition, emphasis. Are there synonyms in the text? Different words that mean the same thing. Take note of the names and the places, actions and reactions, causes and effects. Take notice of that as you're reading the text. 
And then you want to ask questions to the text. Ask questions. What kind of questions do we ask the Bible when you read it? Who? What? Where? When? Why? How? Just ask those questions and let the text give you the answer. Now, it may not answer every one of those questions in that passage, but go ahead and throw those questions out and and just let the verse speak to you. You also want to ask the question, what is the writing, what is the writer saying here? Whom is he speaking to? What are the circumstances in which this author wrote? What is the literary form of this passage? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it prophecy? Is it biography? Take note of those things. This is all under the second step of observing the text. Just observing it. Just looking at it. And as you ask those questions, reading the text several times in several versions, write down and take notes of your earliest impressions. Don't worry about organizing the material yet. That's later on down the line. But take note of your earliest impressions, maybe influential words, pictures that come to your mind when you read, other connecting passages. Maybe you're reading something and it's similar to something else you read in another book of the Bible. Write those down. Don't let it escape. Illustrations that perhaps comes, that comes to your mind as you're reading it. Maybe personal experiences. Write all of that down. And in this second step, what's happening is that you're being pulled into the text. You're being pulled. You're man, you're, you are marinating your soul in the juices of the text. And that, my friends, is very exciting. I like what it says in this homiletics book. In the minister's workshop, page 160, it kind of describes this second step in these words. The fruitful reading of the Bible is a sort of brooding. You know what the word brooding means? It means to think deeply about something. Not frantic reading, but brooding. Rather, it is watching the narrative pass before one's mind, holding the mind loose with no tensions or or tautness at all, not worrying whether one finds anything or not. The key point is that one is not working for a particular end. In other words, you're not studying the Bible to prove a pre-opinionated idea or point. You're just letting the Bible speak to you. You're not having so much a goal or an end in mind. You're just asking God, Lord, speak to me through your word. And then it continues to say, the mind broods, thinks thinks deeply, over the page like a hawk over a chicken yard. Then from a leisurely wheel in the air, it swoops down on what what looks like an idea. Now, you don't always get a live chicken. Sometimes it turns out to be merely a hole in the ground. Don't fret about that. The chief thing is the habit, the procedure. And so you're, you're observing the, the, the Bible. And you see something, hey, is there something there? And you, come, you, you take a closer look. And maybe it doesn't lead to anywhere, anywhere special. Don't worry about that. The, the thing is you're, you're getting into the habit of studying the Bible in that way. Not just reading the Bible, but observing the Bible. That's the second step. And then the third step, you want to study the text. You've chosen it. You've observed it. Now you want to go deeper and study it. How do you do this? You look up all the influential words and meanings that may not be apparent in the surface. 
And the ways that in which you extract the meaning of words is through lexicons and dictionary that gives you the exact meaning of the word in its original Hebrew or Greek language. But you can also look up the meaning of words in the Bible by using the concordance and cross-referencing. That determines the meaning of words by how it's used in other places of the Bible. And so the lexicon gives you the exact meaning in the original Greek or Hebrew, but the concordance gives you the meaning of that word or that phrase according to how it's used in other places of the Bible. Because the Bible interprets itself. You also want to look up the context, the historical background, the culture, and Bible commentaries are helpful when it comes to that. Christ Object Lessons, page 109, says that God's words are truth, and they have a deeper significance than appears on the surface. All the sayings of Christ have a value beyond their unpretending appearance. Minds that are quickened by the Holy Spirit will discern the value of these sayings. They will discern the precious gems of truth, though these may be what? Buried treasures. Just like a gold miner has to dig beneath the surface to find the vein of gold. And just like a scuba diver has to go beneath the surface to see the wonders of God's creation, so to the Bible student. You have to not just read, but you got to go deeper. Don't just stay on the surface. Go deeper. How do we do that? Once again, look up the, the meaning of words and how those words are used in other places of the Bible. And that's the third step. You're studying the text. This is the exegesis. You read the passage again in light of all that you found. And now that scripture should be speaking more clearly to you. The spirit should ought to be speaking more distinctly to your mind. I'll give you an example of this. The book of Jonah is a very popular childhood story. But it has deep prophetic significance. As I was studying that book, I looked up the word Jonah, and I found out that the word Jonah means, does anyone know? The word Jonah means dove. And what is the dove a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. But his father's name is Amittai. He's he's Jonah, the son of Amittai. And I looked up the word Amittai, and the definition of that name in the Bible is my truth. So you look at Jonah's name, it's really a reflection of, of, of who God is calling him to be. Dove and truth, spirit and truth. Hey, wait a minute, that reminds me of what Jesus said when he described what a true worshiper is. That a true worshiper will worship God in spirit and in truth. And so Jonah is is called to be a true worshiper. In fact, there's a meaning in his name that, that ought to be a reflection of his life. So he has a name that means something. Do we have a name that means something? Seven-day Adventist, seven-day a reference to the beginning, the God that created the world in six days and rested the seventh. Adventist, talking about that same God that's going to come back the second time. And so seven-day Adventist is really a name that that means the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega, the one that started it and the one that's going to come back and finish it. And everything in between, it encompasses the whole message. Friends, we got a name that means something. You realize that the Holy Spirit is, is the one that gave us the name. Seven-day Adventists. And so, Jonah, his mission, God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and give a cry against it. And I got to studying the city of Nineveh, and I found that, that the 
founder of Nineveh was a man by the name of, anyone know? Nimrod. Nimrod also founded another wicked kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And not only that, but in the Bible, God uses animals to depict kingdoms. Guess which kingdom God uses to depict Nineveh? A lion. That sounds familiar. Is there another kingdom in the Bible that's also depicted as a lion? What kingdom is that? Babylon. And so Nineveh, we can say, is similar to Babylon. It's a type of Babylon. And so Jonah's mission is to give a loud cry against Nineveh. Our mission is to give a loud cry against Babylon with spirit and truth. But what does Jonah do? Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. In the Bible, Tarshish is proverbial for a place of ease, wealth, comfort, and luxury. And friends, unfortunately and tragically, in Revelation 3, it tells us that God's end-time people, who are supposed to be giving a loud cry message against Babylon, instead we think we're rich, have need of nothing. We're, we're, we're comfortable and we're, we're seeking a place of ease. But then Jonah... His life was changed when he got swallowed by the fish. I had a whole sermon on this a couple years ago in GYC. I'm not going to repeat it. But when you look up the words, you find that there's a deeper prophetic significance beneath the surface. And that's what we need to do in step number three. And then step number four, find the truth and application in the text. Find the truth and application. Write down every principle of truth contained in the passage verse by verse. Ask the question, what does this truth tell me about God? What does it tell me about Satan? What does it tell me about myself? What are the practical implications of this truth in the day-to-day life? What you're doing in this step is more than just picking out a few nuggets of truth, but rather you're looking for a theme. You're looking for structure. You're looking for the design, write down how that principle applies back then and how it applies right now. Find the truth, the the application and the truth in that text. And then step number five, consult the spirit of prophecy or other biblical commentaries on that passage. It is a well-accepted principle of hermeneutics that latter prophets explain and enlarge and even interpret the writings of earlier prophets. The New Testament explains the old. And so, nothing wrong with, with a, absolutely, is absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, we ought to do it. Consult what the Spirit of Prophecy has to say. The Spirit of Prophecy is like a divine commentary on the Bible. I'm so grateful for the Spirit of Prophecy. How about you? Now, I'm assuming that all of us are familiar with it, and believe it. If not... That's something that you're going to have to study for yourself. In our seminar, we have a whole presentation, How to Tell a True Prophet, Revelation, Spirit of Prophecy. But God has given us some additional inside information. Uh, The Spirit of Prophecy is not to take the place of the Bible, but it's to bring us back to the Bible. It's like a magnifying glass. If you were to put a magnifying glass in front of the Bible, is that magnifying glass going to change the Bible? Is it going to take something out of it? Will it add something to it? What does a magnifying glass do? It makes clearer and larger. 
that which is already there. And the reason why God saw, saw that it's so important to give the spirit of prophecy, the ministry of Ellen White in the last days, is because we are the blindest generation. We need some bifocals. We need extra special help. And friends, everything that is in the spirit of prophecy can, all, can always be proved from the word of God. At least in its principle. God has given us such a rich gift. And so do that at the fifth step, though. You know, get it from the Bible first. It's there. In the fifth step, you'll discover, man, you thought that, man, I, I found that, and you feel like it was original. Then you read the Spirit of Prophecy and said, oh, she said it long, long time ago. <laughs> but it's confirmation that you're on the right track. And it's such a blessing. And so, consult the Spirit of Prophecy, as you can also do other Bible commentaries. Then take notes of the applications that are made especially. Ellen White takes some of these biblical principles and makes some beautiful applications and uh, make sure you write everything down. Don't worry about organizing the material yet. You're still gathering the building blocks. You're gathering the, the, the ingredients for your sermon meal. And that's in the first five steps. Then step number six, now is the time to start organizing. So step, step six, what do you do? You determine the main central point of the passage. Now, this is so important. It's probably one of the hardest steps. This is where, this is where the brick wall usually comes. This is where people give up at the sixth step. But once you get past this, everything flows together. So what does this mean? You have to figure out the main central point. Maybe you've gathered all kinds of information from your study from your observation, from the spirit of prophecy. Many different points. You have a massive matter. Now you observe all of those things and you're asking the question, what is the main point? What is the, where's the theme? What is the, the, the thing that is consistent in all of these things? How are they connected? This helps you take aim and focus as to where you're going. It is the theme that gives coherence to the sermon. So you want to try and find the theme and you want to write it down in one sentence. In one sentence, write down the core message that your sermon will convey. And that sentence, that objective should be in your mind all the time so that you know where you're going. Now, how do you find the theme? Well, friends, listen. The theme should naturally emerge as you examine your exegete of the passage. So you have to ask this. Of all the truths that I found in this passage... Which one is the central truth, the foundational truth, the pillar or the most potent point of the passage? You have to distinguish between the main point and other peripheral points. There's going to be peripheral points, other side points that are very important too. But what's the most important one? That's what you want to do in step number six. Now, why is this so important? Because a sermon is kind of like a symphony. How many of you have been to a symphony before? How many of you play in a symphony? Anybody? All right. And so, you know, I'm not so much of a music person, but I have attended a few symphonies before. And a, ser- a sermonic symphony is set around one major theme or tune. First, the theme is slowly and simply played on one singular instrument. And then as it continues on, other instruments are brought around that one instrument. 
to add more uh, 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 color to the symphony. Then there are variations of that same tune that is played to give the symphony more character. That same tune is played slow, then it's played fast. It's played soft, then it's played loud. It's played in a major chord, then maybe a minor chord. And then at the close, there's usually a spine-tingling crescendo of the original theme, thus fixing in memory the music into the hearts of the hearers forever. A sermon should be like that. The main point, played simply, stated simply. And then other instruments or other points or other passages or other stories brought around to support that point. And you show it how it applies in different ways, slow and fast and, and, and major and minor and loud and soft. And then at the end, you go over that same theme again in the crescendo, in the climax. And the people will never forget the message. It is essential to find the theme first before you write down the sermon. If you don't know the theme, you're not going to know where you're going. And if, the, if you discover that there's more than one main theme, then you have just discovered a series of sermons or a series of Bible studies. And so you want to break it up into different sermons and not try to push everything into one. And so here are some questions to ask that will help us discover the theme. Can I state the purpose of this sermon in a single declarative sentence, unencumbered by subordinate clauses or conjunctions? Can I summarize it in one sentence? If not, then it still needs some work, or you have multiple sermons that need to be written. Can I state the content in a similar sentence? Can I mark the progression of the sermon by a straight line that runs without deviation from the first word to the final word. That's the goal in step number six. Find the main theme. If that makes sense, please say amen. amen. All right. So once you find the main theme, and sometimes, sometimes you find the theme as you continue to write. So don't let the fact that you've not settled on a main theme, stop you from continuing on. You can, you can actually continue on to number seven, and sometimes the theme emerges as you, as you continue. So step number seven is you got to prepare an outline. You see, this, a sermon is like the physical body. The body needs a skeletal system, a structure of form. The material must be arranged to make it intelligible and memorable. And so, what are some sermon outlines? Simple sermon outlines, let's break it down by the types of sermons. A topical outline would usually look like this. You have your introduction that, ex- that, that introduces the subject, three points, and a close. That would be the topical sermon outline. If the topic is the Sabbath, then my introduction perhaps would be something like this. You know, we live in a world that's crazy and fast-paced and there's so many deadlines and appointments and schedules and activities pulling us here and there and everywhere. We're just so busy, burnt out and distracted. Humanity desperately needs rest. We live in a restless world that's longing for rest. Life is a never-ending pursuit of rest. Giving some examples of that so forth. You're creating a need for what you're about to present, which is... Sabbath rest. And so, my first point, perhaps, 
would be how God gave the Sabbath as a memorial of creation. My second point, perhaps, would be what day is the Sabbath? That's an important point. Seven day of the week. Third point, maybe, how to keep the Sabbath. And then the close, a decision, for uh, a calling for people to make a decision to accept the rest that only Jesus offers, not only uh, the spiritual rest, but the physical rest of keeping the seventh day of the week. And so that's just a general example of the topical outline. And then you have, what about the textual sermon? The outline would look like this. You have your introduction which perhaps is the background of your main text, the historical background. And then the various points of your outline is determined by each word or phrase or sentence of your text. So if you're doing a textual sermon on John 3.16, you can talk about how that's the most popular in your introduction. You can talk about how that's the most popular verse in the world, but people don't really understand it. And then your body, the body of, of your outline is just going through that text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And you're just extracting all the meaning from that, using other verses and stories to illustrate it phrase by phrase. And then you have your clothes. That would be the textual outline. Then you have, what about the expository outline? The introduction of the expository sermon would usually be the context of the story. And Ellen White does a good job in doing this. If you want to recreate the scene in the introduction, you can just read the Spirit of Prophecy and how she describes from different perspectives the scenes. I just love what she does. So the introduction would be the context. And then the body of your outline, would the points are brought out in the narrative of the story as you just go from point to point through the, through the, through the story. And then your close would be the outcome of the story and how it applies to your life. That would be the expository sermon. Now, questions that we can ask as you're creating your sermon outline. Questions to constantly ask yourself, why am I preaching this sermon? What is the goal? What is the objective? What am I trying to say? What's my aim? What do I want this sermon to accomplish? It's good to keep those questions in mind as you begin to pull the, the, the information together. Very important. It helps you to stay focused and not deviate onto too many, too many peripheral side points to the point that you write a sermon that's way too long. So be asking those questions. And you also need to imagine that the sermon is a journey. It's a what? That you're taking your hearers on with you. So as you prepare the outline, try to visualize the sermon as a journey. What is a journey? It's it's, it's taking someone from point A to point B. Where they are at to where they ought to be. Therefore, your introduction, the beginning of your sermon, the introduction, ought to meet people where they're at. Pick them up where they're at. Something that they can connect with. Something that will grab their attention. And so you pick them up, that's the beginning of the sermon journey, and your close, the end of the sermon, ought to drop them off where they need to be, in God's will. But we know that a journey is more than point A and point B, it's more than the introduction and the close. There is stops along the way 
there are places to stop along the way to the close. That's your points, right? You start one place and you're heading to the close. You're heading to the destination, but you want to stop. There are lookouts. You want to just stop and pause for a moment, but don't stay at those points for too long because there's a destination to arrive at. And so you need to have those points. Remember that it's a single journey. There's a destination. Each sermon should be destined for decision. A sermon journey. Now, another person said it like this. You can also write a sermon based on this type of outline. What, why, how, what then? And it doesn't always have to be in that order, but every sermon ought to answer these questions. So what is basically the interpretation or explanation of a biblical truth. That's your, that's your main content. What are you trying to say? Some kind of explanation of a biblical truth. Explain it. But don't just explain what it is. Explain why it's important. The purpose, the reason, the importance of that biblical truth. Don't just tell people what, tell them why. Right? You know, most people who grow up in church, they know what day the Sabbath is, but they do not know why it's so important. If they don't know why, it's easy for them to let it go because they don't see the importance, the purpose, the reason behind it. So what? Then explain why. Then how it applies practically. The practical application of that truth in modern times. Explain how it's practical. What does it look like in real life? And then what then would be the promise of the application? The promise that God gives to us in His Word, the benefits, the blessings that we receive if we take what has been presented and apply it to our lives. And so sometimes you look at your Bible study, you look at your sermon, you want to throw it up against these questions to see if that sermon is, is, is dealing and answering with, with, with those questions. All the data you've gathered together from your study should be organized into these kinds of sections. If it doesn't fit, if, it, if the information that you have doesn't really fit, put it aside. Avoid the detours. Come back to those points on another sermon trip, another sermon series. Now, how many points should a sermon have? Evangelism 181 says, short, plainly made points, avoiding all rambling would be of the greatest advantage. You ought to preach, or we ought to strive to preach one-point sermons. One-point sermons. Now, in that sermon, there'll be sub-points, but it all should support that one main point. Does that make sense? All right. So that's the body of your sermon outline. What about the introduction? Well, friends, there are four kinds of introductions. What is the purpose of an introduction? is to pick them up where they're at, right? It's to captivate the attention. So these are the different kinds of introductions. There's the biblical context. Maybe you start the sermon by just describing the context of the story you're going to go through. Biblical context. Another way to introduce a sermon is just stating or submitting a problem that the content of your sermon will answer or solve. For an example... I'll just use the example I gave before the Sabbath. We live in a restless world. We live in a very fast-paced society. If the devil cannot make you bad, he will make you busy till we have no time 
to yield your mind to spiritual things. And so, because we live in a restless world, I want to share with you in, this, in, in our study today how the Lord came to give us sweet rest. You're just stating the problem, submitting the problem, and you go right on to the body of the sermon, which offers the solution. Then a third way to illustrate is just a story. A story that illustrates everything you're about to say. I have a sermon on uh, the importance of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and I start that by sharing my experience when I went to visit India, and I got the chance to visit my palace, the Taj Mahal. Any of you seen the Taj Mahal before? It's a beautiful building. Everything is easy on the eyes. White marble that reflects the glory of the sun. Everything is symmetrical. It took, uh, it took over 20,000 laborers and, uh, and, and stone cutters over 20 years to finish that amazing building. It's so beautiful. It's the pride and joy of India, a symbol of love. But when I went there and I saw my palace for the first time, I was amazed by its beauty. But when I went on the inside, I realized that it's nothing but empty space. It's filled with emptiness, except for the bones of the king and the wife he made it for. And how, and I use that story to illustrate how it's, many of us look good on the outside, but on the inside we're so empty. We're like a whited sepulcher full of dead man's bones. So you share the story to illustrate the passage. Then number three, a direct introduction. You can just state your points. So you can get up and say, today I'm going to talk about prayer. And in our first part, we're going to see the purpose of prayer. In our second part, we're going to see how to pray. In our third part, we're going to see the promises of God when we, when we come to him in prayer. So just a very straightforward, direct, stating your objective of the sermon. So those are in- introductions. What about a good close? A good close ought to include at least three things. Number one, it ought to include a review of the main point and points you've presented. The close must have a review because repetition deepens impression. Number two, a close ought to tie in with the introduction somehow. You mentioned something in the introduction. A close echoes it, so you're wrapping around. It's a full circle message. You want to have a full circle sermon. And you do that in the introduction and the close. And then number three, of course, the close ought to have an appeal calling for a relevant decision. It doesn't have to be some kind of dramatic altar call, but maybe the raising of the hand or or just an acceptance in the heart. Some kind of call to action. To apply, because as I mentioned, information without application results in condemnation, because to whom much is given, much is required. So we must appeal for people to decide according to the truth. And so that's under step number seven. You are writing the outline of the sermon. All right, step number eight, after you have your outline, you have the skeleton. You now need to put some meat on it. You need to illustrate the sermon. Illustrate the sermon. But make sure you have content to illustrate. Don't just make a sermon out of an illustration. The illustration simply makes clear, clearer the content of what you're presenting from the Bible. And so what is the purpose of illustrations? Number one, it provides clarity. 
An illustration will, will also grip the person's attention, right? Stories always grab people's attention. An illustration makes the truth practical. It fleshes out that theology, and it makes it practical in day-to-day life. It makes the sermon memorable. It helps people to remember. You know, I've heard many sermons and I, that I've forgotten, but I've heard many stories I've never forgotten. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus always was sharing parables. Not only that, but illustrations enable you to repeat your point without repeating the same words. You're saying the same thing in a different way by using an illustration. And also an illustration eases the congregation. You know, if you're presenting a message that requires mental effort to understand, and you're just hammering and explaining deep theological things, there's only so much the human mind can can take. And so you stop and you share an illustration that eases the congregation, gives uh, people time or or your hearers time to breathe and to absorb what is being said. And Jesus is the master of this. Desire of Ages 254 says, his messages of mercy were varied to suit his audience. Jesus knew how to scratch where it itched. He knew how to speak a word in season to him that is weary for grace was poured upon his lips that he might convey in, to men in the most attractive way the treasures of truth. He attacked to meet the prejudiced minds and surprised them with illustrations that won their attention. Through the imagination, he reached the heart. His illustrations were taken from the things of daily life. And although they were simple, they had in them a wonderful depth of meaning. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field, the seed and the shepherd and the sheep. With these objects, Christ illustrated immortal truth. And ever afterward, when his hearers chanced to see the things of nature, they recalled his words. Christ's illustrations constantly repeated his lessons. So I want to be like Jesus. How about you? So we started maybe about a year ago doing a special series. We have, you know, our Revelation of Hope series, which is Bible prophecy, explaining all the, the doctrines of the, of the Bible. But uh, about a year ago, we started a series that we're really excited about. It's called Reflections of Hope, where we create these five-minute cinematic devotional clips, object lessons based on nature or adventure or culture or history. And we explain that thing and we illustrate it with beautiful cinematography and then we give the simple gospel message. Any of you seen any of our episodes, Reflections of Hope? Go on our YouTube channel and just type in my name or Reflections of Hope. We have 15 episodes. My currently, my, my personal favorite is the one called Manta Light, where we're swimming with manta rays in the darkness and how Jesus is the light of the world. And so God wants us to learn to utilize the things of daily life and nature, things that are seen to illustrate the things that are not seen. And that's the method of Jesus. Illustrate the sermon. And then step number nine, write a manuscript based upon your sermon outline. Now, not every sermon needs a manuscript. I have many sermons that I preach from just outline. And usually smaller groups are better for an outline sermon. But a manuscript sermon is very, very helpful as well. According to Martin Luther King Jr., who was an expert orator, he said this, here are the benefits of writing out a manuscript. Manuscript meaning word for word. It promotes analysis, synthesis, and an organization of material. It helps you to be organized better. 
It fosters the selection of plan and orderly use of language. This, this is where you can get very creative with language, and we're going to talk about that in our next presentation. It assists in the process of familiarization with the organization and movement of ideas. An outline doesn't really lend itself to that, but if you write it down word for word, you can, you can, uh, you can obtain that result. Positive reasons for writing a manuscript. It helps you to control your time, especially if you, if you're, you have a tendency like me to wander. If you have it word for word, it helps you to time it out, make sure you're, you finish under time. Your manuscript is your safety net to protect you from the pit of nervousness. Sometimes you get nervous. You know, I, I, I read a statistic. There are some people who they're, they're more afraid of public speaking than anything else. Even some people rather get eaten by a shark than to stand up and speak in front of people. You don't have to be afraid of being, getting eaten by a shark. Sharks are friendly. <laughs> I love swimming with sharks. But you get nervous. And so if you have it in a manuscript, it saves you from the pit of nervousness. But it also makes your sermon uh, file a library that you can draw on. So if you write it word for word, sometimes you, you, you can do different variations of the same sermon. You can combine sermons together, maybe the first point of this sermon and the second point of this sermon, they, they kind of go together and you can recreate something else. It saves you a bunch of time, in other words. And so I've been doing that more and more often and I found it to be very, very helpful. And then step number 10, we're almost finished. <coughs> you got to plan the appeal. The sermon must have an appeal and the appeal must be written after the body of the sermon has, has been accomplished. And what should the appeal include? Number one, it ought to be specific. What are you calling people to do? Who are you calling? And what are you calling them to do? What is the decision? Number two, it must be Christ-centered. In other words, you're not just asking people to keep the Sabbath. What you're really doing is you're asking people to accept Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. And when you accept the Lord of the Sabbath, you're going to keep the Sabbath as a result. When I do my message on the Sabbath, I don't really ask straightforward for people to keep the Sabbath. I ask them to accept Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. I say, how many of you want the rest that only Jesus offers? And so the appeal must be specific, but it must be Christ-centered. In other words, the action must, must, people must see how that action is based upon our relation with Jesus. Based upon our relationship with Jesus. Number three. The appeal should be based upon the sermon content. That's obvious. Number four, it ought to be made with urgency because it's a matter of life and death. <laughs> it says here, Evangelism 280, with an unction of the Holy Spirit upon him, giving him a burden for souls, he will not dismiss a congregation without presenting before them Jesus Christ, the sinner's only refuge, making earnest appeals that will reach the hearts. He should feel that they may never, he should feel that he may never meet these hearers again until the great day of God. And friends, it's true. Some people are listening to the last message they'll ever hear, hearing the last Bible study they'll ever receive. Tomorrow's not a guarantee. All we have is today. Tomorrow may not come for somebody. 
And so we must make the appeal with that in mind. I've had so many experiences where I was preaching, not realizing that there was someone sitting there that was listening to their last message. I had a meeting in the Big Island, and there's a sister that wanted to get baptized, but she didn't make the decision. But then she sent me a Facebook message, and she said, next time you come back, I want you to baptize me. And then about two months after that, I heard the tragic news that she was murdered in a hotel room. I'm not sure what was going on in her heart before her life was taken. Only God knows. We leave that with the Lord. But friends, it's, it's a very solemn thing to give the message of the Lord and not give an appeal. We have to call people to decide. They may not decide, but we leave that between them and the Lord. Can you say amen? <clears throat> Step number 11 is we need to rehearse the sermon. You should rehearse the sermon either audibly by saying it or at least mentally in your mind. Rehearse the sermon. The advantages of rehearsing the sermon are, are, are as follows. It enables you to fine-tune the message. Maybe you're, you're rehearsing it. I usually do this in my mind. And as I'm saying it, I'm also hearing how, how it sounds in my mind. And I'm realizing, man, there, there might be a better way to say it. you can fine-tune, get rid of all the unnecessary or weak words and replace those weak words with more potent words. Number two, it helps you visualize the reaction of the audience because reading it and hearing it is, is two different things. Saying it and hearing it is, is, a, is a totally different experience. So you want to put yourself in your hearer's shoes and, and not just ask yourself the question, what I'm saying, but ask the question, what are they hearing from what I'm saying? And that happens when you rehearse the sermon. Then number three, it improves your speech skills. It helps you to to look at the manuscript and say, hey, this is a weak word. There's a more potent word I can can put in place of it. And that's where the thesaurus comes in handy. And then number four, it fixes the points in your memory when you rehearse it. A lot more I can say on that, but our time, we got two minutes left. All right, rehearse the sermon and then... If the finished product doesn't move you, it's not going to move anyone else. Don't preach it unless the message has first moved you. Amen? And if it's moved you, then step number 12, preach the sermon. Deliver it behind the pulpit. That's the birth of the sermon. That's where the word that's being, that was being, that was growing in the womb of your mind and heart is finally birthed and delivered to the world. Now, friends, listen, when you preach the sermon for the first time, just like a baby being born, sometimes it can be very messy and not what we envisioned it to be. Any mothers can relate with that? You were, (laughs) the birth wasn't exactly how you envisioned it to be. Well, friends, that happens sometimes when you preach. Don't worry about that. Do the 13th and last step. Maybe there's more steps you can add to it, but I could only think of 13. The 13th step is improve the sermon. When a baby is born, it must be cleaned up. So likewise, after every sermon you preach, clean it up. How? By editing it. Remove the unnecessary and distracting details. Replace weak words with stronger words. Add adjectives. And add adverbs. We'll talk about that in our next presentation. 
Maybe you want to rearrange your points completely. Maybe as, you, as you've preached it and you've, you've seen the audience reaction, you realize that, that, man, my second point would be better as my first point. And, and, my, and my third point really is the close. And so you do that after you preach, you improve the sermon. And so those are the 13 steps. If you missed them, they're there on the screen. You can write it down or take a picture. And I hope that was helpful for you today. As I mentioned, it's probably not the most inspirational presentation of the six, but it's definitely the most practical one. And uh, my friends, my goal in, in sharing this is because all of us need to use our voices for the Lord Jesus. You know, it's very expensive for people to fly speakers across the world to preach, and it's probably not the best use of money. I don't mind doing it. I enjoy traveling, but if all of us use our voices, the loud cry message will go to the world. Amen? So I hope and pray that you would recognize that no matter who you are, how much you know or how little you may know, God can use you. Let let me tell you, friends, I'm the least likely candidate to preach. I destroyed my mind doing drugs from a very young age. I'm an introvert. I'm shy. I'm socially awkward even. I'm the least likely candidate to preach. My English, terrible. Slow of speech. But if God can use me, he can use anybody. Amen? And he wants to. And so how many of you want to be used of the Lord? Praise the Lord. Let's close with prayer. We'll have a 15-minute break, and we hope you won't miss the last presentation. Let's stand together, shall we? In the last presentation, we're going to deal with the mechanisms of the method. We're going to deal with the tools of creative language, creative speech. We're also going to talk about visual communication, too. It's going to be awesome. So don't miss it. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to hear this practical presentation of the 13 steps of how a sermon is conceived in the womb of our mind as we, as we know you and how it's developing over a period of study, a period of time, a period of writing, and finally delivered, birthed behind the pulpit. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to to take these steps. May we experience this practically in our lives, and we thank you for hearing us. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.